James comes. If you'll uh, please turn to 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Church, you can be seated and I'll pray for us. A lot in ministry, a lot in churches can change. It happens all the time. Uh, many churches uh, will have their last service this Sunday because they are dying. Um, sometimes due to unfaithfulness, sometimes just that's just the way things worked out. Um, churches, they change all the time. Um, the word of the Lord remains forever. That's why we stand under the authority of God's word. So let's pray and ask him to speak to us and let's ask him to help us receive his word. Father, this is your word that James just read. My deepest prayer is that this sermon would not distract from that word, but would instead just highlight it. May I do nothing more but share what I have seen. May we behold your glory together. May you use your word in our lives in ways a, a sermon could never prepare us for. I pray that your spirit would bring application that I could never bring. Father, your word is power. And I pray that you would use it now. Help us to listen and receive and obey. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mitch, man, thank you so much for ministering to us through song. Um, we had some church this morning, you know. You ever hear that? We had church. We had church. You know, it's, when you're from southeastern Kentucky, you hear that all the time because they're like, you know, 10 backwoods country churches, um, like, on every block. So, you know, they're not really backwoods. They're just all over the place. They came out of the woods, and they're, now they're just in the cities everywhere in southeastern Kentucky. But, yeah, man, just seriously, thank you so much for ministering to us in that way. Um, honestly, we could probably just have the scripture read and go home, but in the words of Lee Corso, not so fast. We have a full page worth of notes we're going to get through right here, right now. Now, one thing I am glad with Kentucky losing last night, at least in the Commonwealth, football season is over. We're going to have a great season, the best season we've ever had, but football season is over. Kentucky plays Duke this Tuesday, and it is on. We have turned to the round ball, and I am thrilled, and for Mississippi State and Ole Miss fans, the season ended weeks ago, so, you know, sorry about that. And now for LSU fans as well. So Matt Wilt, the remnant, Alabama, you know, should I, I don't know if I should call them out. I don't know if they'd be safe the rest of the service. But our few Alabama fans, you have some hope for the rest of the year. But I am excited that basketball starts back. I played basketball all the way growing up. And if you'll permit me to have an Uncle Rico moment, I'm going to reflect back on some of my high school memories. So uh, one of the things that I learned to hate about my head coach, and he, he is a historic head coach. He is a legend in Kentucky high school basketball. It was an honor to play for him. Um, but as a freshman, 
uh, I, I, was, I was playing and I was starting with this group that had been together and won a couple state championships. And so they, they were just this group and I ended up just somehow fitting in with that rotation. And we went to uh, Wake Forest actually for a Christmas tournament. And we were playing there, we lost three games in a row. And that's just something you did not do. You could lose and you might could lose twice, but you lose three times, you don't do that at, at our school. You just didn't do it. And so I remember him, after that third game, he came in the locker room and he looked at all of us and he said, he said, men, we're going to get a lot better next week. And I was just like, oh, okay, cool. The people who were just above me, like sophomores and juniors, they were like shaking in their sneakers. Like they were just shaking. They were like, oh man, like I'm going to try to get sick for next week. I really don't want to be there. I don't want to come. And the seniors were really pumped. Like they were really, really excited. Like their perspectives on what he meant by that were totally different. And then as I uh, learned that next week was the absolute worst week of my basketball life. It was sprint after sprint after sprint. He took us through the gauntlet. And his phraseology, we're going to get a lot better this week. Man, he was going to take us through some pain. And we did. We lifted more weight than we'd ever lifted. We ran more than we ever had. We practiced for hours and hours and hours, and we didn't lose another game until the very end of the season. We did get a lot better during that week. And the way that each of us as, as teammates approached this depended on our perspective. See, the seniors were really excited about this week because they knew, they knew from experience that going through hard practices meant you were going to actually come out in the end and be better. Now, for some of the ones who weren't really in the rotation, they, they weren't really playing that much, they hated it because they were just going to go through a bunch of pain. Maybe they'll get in better shape or whatever, but they're not actually even going to be contributing to the team. So they absolutely hated it. And then for someone like me, I was totally ignorant. I didn't have any idea. But our perspective determined how we dealt with the adversity of that week that was intentionally brought to us by our coach. You see, theologically as good Baptists, and we're all good Baptists in this room, right? We are confident in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, yes? That all those who are justified, Romans 8, will be glorified, that God will complete the work that he has begun in us, that he will keep us until the end, and there is no sin, there is no experience, there is nothing anyone can do to us and nothing that we can do that can stop God from working out his purposes in our life, conforming us to the image of his son, and bring us to glory in the end. We're confident in that. We are confident that before we are glorified that we are being sanctified, but the sanctification process has an end, and we will one day be sanctified. We rejoice in that. We're so glad. We love to talk about it. But I want to ask you, just to consider, you might, if, you, if you like writing things down, just to kind of process things, you might want to write this down. What are the means of sanctification? Right? Because we love to, to come to the Bible or theology textbooks and say, this is how it works, and this is the end. And then we talk about that, and we're kind of done. But do you ever consider the means? If you played for Coach Wright, you were going to be a good player. You just were. You know why? He didn't mess with the bad players. And the bad players could not endure the fire that he brought. They couldn't endure it. You were going to have a good team. He was going to have a good team because only the good teams were able to endure that fire. We liked the end, but we didn't really understand the means. And those who did understand, they endured the best because they knew what was coming. So theologically, spiritually, what are the means? And I think that we have a tendency to only focus on the mental means. Well, here's how God shapes me into the image of his son through Bible study. And the more I learn about the Bible, the more I'm going to be like Jesus. And then we're like, theology. The more I think about God, the more he's going to conform me to the image of his son. The more I'm going to grow. And we kind of equate spiritual growth with mental theological exercises, almost like homework. You know, if I can just do these assignments, then I'm going to know more, and then I'm going to ace the test. 
And sometimes we forget that God also uses the means of experience to sanctify us. And even more than that, we forget, and maybe we don't even want to think about it, that God uses, uses intentionally pain and suffering for the express purpose of conforming us to the image of his son. And so our passage today is Peter's encouragement to Christians who are enduring intense persecution. You see, in the first century, uh, people believed that First Peter was probably written, those who deny that Peter wrote it think that it was written in the second century, but those who believe that Peter actually wrote this, it was obviously during his life, was probably in the mid-60s, so 30-some 30, 30 years after Jesus um, uh, was on the earth before he died and, and rose again. Um, Peter wrote this letter, and at that time, uh, there was an emperor who was in charge of the Roman Empire, and his name was Nero, and Nero was insane. Okay, he was insane. The Romans thought he was insane. Like uh, Tacitus, he was a senator at the time, uh, or he was like a senator in the, in the early uh, years of the second century, late first century. And as he's riding back on the time of Nero, he couldn't stand Nero. And he hated Christians. Tacitus hated Christians, but he also couldn't stand Nero because Nero was so evil. And Tacitus, he actually gives one of the few surviving accounts that we have of, of what it was like for these early Christians. And he talked about how Nero, first of all, blamed the Christians for this great fire of AD 64 in Rome that just engulfed Rome. They, he blamed the Christians for that, and then he used that as a means of, of persecuting them, of bringing them in and arresting them and, and executing them. But then everyone started to notice Nero's just randomly persecuting these Christians. There's not even like a good reason for him to do this. And the reason that they knew that is because of the way he was executing the Christians. He was going and rounding up the Christians and bringing them in. We all have heard stories of the Colosseum. What he would do is he would bring them to the, the city center in Rome and he would torment them for his own pleasure. He would dress them up in furs and then he would release the dogs on them until the dogs just ripped their flesh to pieces. And what Tacitus actually observed was it was just because they were Christians. It's not because they believed, because Tacitus actually believed that Christians were blasphemers and that they hated people because Christians actually abstained at that time from a lot of the, the activities in Rome and because they were abstaining for the sake of obedience to uh, God, Tacitus said they hated people. But he's like, they're not even being punished for, for hating people or blaspheming. There's no reason. They are only being persecuted because they are Christians. This is the backdrop of 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, where he opens and he says, beloved or dear ones or Dear friends, can you imagine if you had been a first century Christian you're reading this? Now, granted, those who are receiving this letter are in Asia Minor. They're in, they're in the diaspora, um, still in the, in the Roman Empire. And so most of this intense persecution is actually happening in the capital, in Rome. But there were pockets of persecution uh, happening all over the place in the Roman Empire. And it was random, and you couldn't predict it. And it was only because these people were identifying themselves with Jesus. It was only because they were living out the implications of the gospel. And so Peter opens and he says, Beloved, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You see, Peter is trying to give these early Christians perspective. And you can imagine their questions. How am I supposed to understand this? I have risked a lot by following Jesus, and now I'm probably going to die just because I made that decision. How am I supposed to think about this? And Peter gives them this perspective, but Peter has some personal experience because Peter used to have the wrong perspective. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus is predicting his own death? And he did this a lot. 
It's always funny to me how the disciples just, and, and that's another thing. Like I, I prayed earlier about blind spots. Do you see the blind spots of the disciples? Jesus is point blank telling them, I'm going to die. But he doesn't even leave it at that. He says, I'm going to come back. Like he tells them the story and they're just like, huh? You're going, okay, you are going to die. And then it happens and they're like blown away by it. They're totally shocked. They, just, they had this blind spot. Peter had a blind spot because one of the accounts when Jesus is actually sharing this with, with those there, it says, Peter took Jesus off to the side. And just, oh, it's so smug. Like, Peter's like, okay, all right. And like, let's let, let Jesus finish. You got probably some crowds here, at least the disciples. And he's like, Jesus, Jesus, get over here. Like, trying to stop him from embarrassing himself because it's like he doesn't even recognize who he is. He's like, you just, like, I... Do you remember when I said that you were the Messiah and you said, yeah, Peter, you're right. Okay, do I need to give you a lesson on the Messiah? Like the Messiah is a king. Kings don't suffer. The Messiah is going to reign in a kingdom forever, all right? They don't die. You're talking about suffering and dying. What, are you, what, what is this? And then Jesus looks at Peter and we all know the famous rebuke, get behind me, Satan. Because you have the perspective of man. And you need the perspective of God. And if you had the right heavenly perspective of suffering, then you would understand, I have to suffer. Glory does not come without suffering. I do not get a throne without a cross. And so Peter learns his lesson after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, and then he endures persecution himself in those early days. We're going to look at Acts 5 a little bit later. Such a cool passage. Now, he's writing to these Christians, and do you, do you feel it now? Dear friends, dear friends, don't be surprised like I was. Don't be surprised. This makes complete sense. So if you have your notes, I want to invite you to... Uh, get those out. We're going to be talking about persevering through persecution. It's, it's really fitting. Today's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and um, it's just so fitting that, that we're in this passage today um, as Peter is talking about how Christians are to persevere through persecution. And it's a really tough thing for us because much of our Christian lives is so comfortable, so comfortable. And I hope by the end of this, you almost have a, a hint of jealousy of the persecuted church, just a hint. All right, let's, let's look at our passage in the sentence. We try to summarize uh, the, at least the sermon, if not the passage, at least the sermon in, in one sentence. And, and I've done that here. Christian suffering is a purifying fire that deepens our joy, reveals our witness, and strengthens our faith. So we're gonna unpack the four parts of that statement. Christian suffering is a purifying fire that deepens our joy, reveals our witness, and strengthens our faith. Our first point, Christian suffering is a purifying fire. Now, when you come to a passage like this and you see the word suffering, we need to be very careful. And anytime you approach God's word, you need to handle it very carefully. And you need to always remember that this, this is written... 2,000 plus years ago, okay? So there's a little bit of work that needs to be done. I, don't just simply read a passage and then the first inclination that comes to your mind, you're like, oh, this is what that means. You need more work. You need more time. You need to refine that. You need to read it over and over and over and over again and then see how your interpretation shifts because most of the time, our initial interpretation is clouded by all kinds of cultural bias it, it, and we can't help it. It's, it's not necessarily evil. It's just the way it is. We, we live in 21st century America. We live in Mississippi. We live in this. It's just you were, you were raised a particular way. You have your own biases that you bring to the text every single time. So you need to be patient. And just a good example here, when you talk about suffering, there are different kinds of suffering, right? And so when Peter makes these claims, hey, don't be surprised when you suffer. We need to know what kind of suffering he's talking about. Because I would submit to you that if you were experiencing abuse, that should be surprising, okay? So let's just look at the different kinds of suffering here. There, I'm going to mention just three kinds of suffering. There are three kinds of suffering, and we're only talking about one 
in this passage. I believe Peter is only referring to one kind of suffering in this passage. And it's so important because it drives our interpretation of all of his exhortations and encouragements. So first, there is suffering that is a consequence of the fall. So Adam and Eve, when they're created, they were created to be and live with God. And then they sin against God. And when they sin against God, this perfect world is now broken. And we see these curses that, that are laid out. And part of those is the man was created or people were created to cultivate the, the earth and to rule over it. And they're still going to do that. They're still going to work. But now the work is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And we, we see in Romans 8 how, how creation is groaning as it awaits final redemption. And so when we talk about suffering as a result of the fall, we're talking about things like natural disasters. We're talking about things like disease. Things that we can't control, things that are not the result of personal moral failure. Like you didn't get cancer because you, you sinned or you didn't obey God enough. It's, we live in a fallen world. Okay, this, the second kind of suffering is suffering that is the result of sin. And we're talking about personal sin here. You don't get to claim that God is putting you through a sanctifying fire because you're enduring some hardship because you sinned, okay? Some pain, some suffering is the direct result of disobedience to God. And when you, okay, for example... You look at verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're not blessed if you're insulted because you're being a jerk to somebody, you know? Like, you're taking your Bible and you're beating them over the head with it, and they're like, I don't, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And you take joy in that because you've been persecuted for your faith. Like, no, there's no blessing in suffering for sin. But that's not the kind of um, suffering that Peter's talking about. He actually directly um, shares that in verse 15. This third kind is the kind that, that's in view. Suffering is a consequence of following Jesus. So that's the category of this passage. Peter is addressing Christians who are suffering just because they're Christians. All of his encouragements, all of his exhortations are for Christians who are suffering because they're obeying the gospel, because they're living out the implications of the gospel, because they are being faithful witnesses for Jesus in their cities. They are suffering for it, and Peter says, here's how you need to process this. Here's the perspective that you need to have. Now, does the Bible say a lot about suffering in these other ways? Absolutely. Does God use suffering from sin, those consequences, to help conform his children to the image of his son? Absolutely. And does he use things like disease and natural disaster to Purify Absolutely, but that's not what this passage is talking about, and we don't need to say things that God has not clearly revealed in his word. So we're gonna, th- those are our parameters as we, as we walk through this passage. But Christian suffering is a purifying fire. Do you notice how he describes suffering? So for the rest of the passage, he's gonna talk about Christian suffering or being insulted or reviled, suffering according to God's will, all of these different things. And do you see what he says in verse 12? Do not be surprised at the, here's how he describes it, fiery trial, or more literally, fiery ordeal, when it comes upon you to test you. He already gives us more parameters as we understand this kind of suffering. He is defining Christian persecution as something that comes upon you for the purpose of testing you. So God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, allows Christians to endure pain and suffering for their faith as a test. Now, now how does that work? It's only in the fire of suffering that our allegiances are tested. You see, as long as everything is good and no one's questioning you for your faith and no one's challenging you, which is really the majority of our, our lives here in Tupelo, right? Like we, just, we just really don't face that much um, outright opposition for our faith. So it's, so it's actually really easy for us to have allegiances that are blended together. In the fire of suffering, what happens is just as as metal, whenever heat comes to it, the dross is removed and anything that's impure is destroyed and the pure metal remains, our allegiances are 
divided. So, for example, if you are, are working in a job and, and, and a boss or a supervisor comes to you and asks you to do something that if you carried it out, you would be directly disobeying Jesus. You would. And you have to make, you're faced in that moment with a choice. Either I'm going to disobey God and ensure that I'm going to keep my job. Or I'm going to take a risk. And I'm going to disobey my employer and possibly lose my job, but remain faithful to Jesus. That's the fire. That's a fiery trial. That's, that's real stuff right there. That's not just like a hypothetical for a, for a theological classroom. That's food on the table. You know? That, that's income. That's, that's fire. You see, you're, you're, you're in it. You're in this furnace. And as you make that choice, some things are going to be revealed. In the fire of Christian suffering, God reveals your heart. He reveals who and what you are truly committed to. He reveals what you truly worship in this fire. Because if God is your greatest treasure, you will remain committed to him and you will risk losing income or relationships or status or career. And do you see how going through that process would be for your good? As you're having to process um, how committed you are in your faith? Is this something that's real? Or is it just something that's cultural for me? I, I've just always grown up in the church. You're going to have to make some real choices that will reveal where your allegiance is. But only in the fire of Christian suffering. Only when you are being persecuted for your faith are you even faced with the choice to begin with. So, just, just so you're aware, just, just simply, God uses this intentionally to help you, to purify you, to take you through this fire and remove any of these allegiances that have been blended with your allegiance to Jesus. They're being waned out. You're being weaned, you are being weaned off of any commitment to anything that is not Jesus. Because when you're in the fire, when you look to anything or anyone but Jesus to save you, you'll recognize that they can't. So if you capitulate, you'll have more opportunities. You may capitulate and then you might get laid off the next month anyway. You know? You might, you might decide, I can't risk this right now. My family depends on this, on this check. I can't. I can't risk it. And then you get laid off anyway. So you've put your trust in something that can't save you. Yet, if your friends leave or if your employer fires you or you lose some kind of status because of your faith in Jesus, Jesus isn't going anywhere. He isn't going anywhere and you will be further conformed to his image and further reflecting his glory in the world. So Christian suffering is a purifying fire. It's something that God sends to help shape us and conform us and mold us into who he has created us to be. Don't forget this means. Okay, and so here's how it, here's how it kind of plays out as we, as we walk through this passage. First, well, the second point here is Christian suffering deepens our joy. So what we're arguing here is that Christian suffering is a purifying fire that does three things. It deepens our joy, it reveals our witness, and it strengthens our faith. So first, Christian suffering deepens our joy. If we look at verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised. So we focused on the fiery trial part. Now we're going to focus on surprise. So do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then verse 14, if you are, he gives an example, if you are insulted or reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So three things here that I want us to see. First, our joy deepens when we are not surprised 
by Christian suffering. Surprise over suffering for following Jesus creates bitterness every single time. It creates bitterness in your heart and you will be just like some of my teammates in the whole time, the whole week that he said, hey, we're gonna be better after this week. They're groaning and they're complaining and when they go to do sets, they don't do them all the way and when they're running, they don't, they don't run as hard as they possibly can and they are groaning and complaining and disrupting the unity of the team. They're a nuisance. And guess what? At the end of that week, they did not persevere. Because they hated the process, their perspective was off. So if you are surprised, you're going to have this kind of attitude. What? Why would God allow something like this to happen to me? Are you kidding me? I obeyed him and risked losing my job. And then I lost my job. Like, he's supposed to just kind of honor the fact that I went through it. Like, oh, this was a test. I'm not, you're not really going to lose your job. It's just a test and then protect me from it. Now, I'm really suffering here. What, what gives? You're going to be bitter. When people revile you or insult you because you're obeying the gospel, if you're surprised, you're not going to be able to love them you're probably gonna hate those who persecute you because you're gonna be bitter that it's happening to you. No, Peter says, expect suffering. And we should expect suffering first because Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Peter was here, so he probably had something like this in mind. Matthew chapter 10. Starting in verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is, not that you, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, sorry, I got to turn the page. You will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher. That's so crucial here. When you're surprised by suffering and you're really bitter, you are elevating yourself above Jesus. I'm too good to suffer, forgetting that Jesus suffered. He doesn't follow you, you follow him. So he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, not a servant above, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. You know, we say it all the time. We want to be more like Jesus. Do you know what Jesus was like? He's called the man of sorrows. He's the suffering servant. You read the gospels and he's really weak. He suffers and he dies. You want to be like him? Prepare to take up a cross and follow him. Don't be surprised when you suffer for following someone who suffered. Let me go back to 1 Peter 4 now. So we should expect suffering because Jesus suffered, but also we should expect suffering because God cares more about our eternal security than our temporary comfort. God cares far more about you persevering until the end than he does about you being comfortable in the present. If you want to be comfortable, don't obey the gospel. Don't do it. Don't follow Jesus. If you want comfort now, if you constantly want to avoid any kind of pain or suffering for the sake of following Jesus, I have a simple solution for you. Don't follow him. If you don't follow him, you will not be reviled for his name. If you don't follow him, if you do not obey him, if you do not live out the implications of the gospel, you will not suffer for his sake. It won't happen. Your life will be a lot easier. It will be comfortable, and you will lose your soul. 
You will have comfort now and you will suffer later. God cares far too much about us to not put us through these trials so that we would be more and more and more like Jesus and persevere to the end. He cares far more about our eternal security than our temporary comfort. Well, secondly, our joy deepens as we share Christ's suffering. So those who share in Jesus' sufferings, we identify with Jesus. We've said that. But do you recognize that whenever you suffer for the express purpose of following Jesus, and everyone knows that the reason that you're enduring this trial is simply because you are a Christian, you are proclaiming the gospel with your life. That's what Paul means when he says he's filling up where the afflictions of Christ were lacking. Not that he somehow had to suffer more because Jesus didn't suffer enough or it was deficient, but the people who we're sharing the gospel with, they've never seen Jesus. They didn't see him hanging on a cross. They didn't see his suffering. When they see you suffer in his name, you are showing them the sufferings of Christ and Those who share in Jesus' suffering will share in Jesus' glory. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see that causal statement? That's uncomfortable. You see what he says? Share, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you do not Share in Christ's sufferings now, you will not share in his glory then. Because the only ones who are sharing in Christ's sufferings are those who are living out the implications of the gospel. Later in this passage, down in verse 17, Peter contrasts God's people with those who do not obey the gospel. Not with those who don't know the gospel, with those who do not obey the gospel the gospel. If you don't obey the gospel, you're never going to suffer persecution. You're never going to share in Christ's sufferings. And if you never share in Christ's sufferings, you will never share in Christ's glory. So if you are suffering now in some capacity for following Jesus, rejoice because it is evidence to you that one day suffering will be no more and you will rejoice in Christ's glory as you share it with him. And then finally, our joy deepens because Christian suffering confirms our identity in Christ. This is so reassuring. Look at verse 14. He gives this example. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Is that your first thought when you think of Christian persecution. I get an email from Open Doors uh, Ministry, and uh, they they share a lot about the persecuted church and stories of people who are being persecuted. Just recently, uh, um, a bus, uh, church church bus or van with uh, some Coptic Christians was uh, was bombed, and, and a lot of them died. Is that a blessing? You know, whenever you think of Jim Elliot and his sacrifice, when you think of John and Betty Stam and their sacrifice as missionaries. Do you think of their deaths or those who oppose them, that process, that persecution as a blessing? How? How does that work? How, how could it possibly be a blessing? We know that if it is a blessing, then persecution only deepens our joy in Jesus. If it is a blessing. How is it a blessing? It's a blessing because it confirms that you actually do belong to Jesus. It's assurance. Persecution brings assurance. People who are living out their faith in the Middle East have more opportunity to be confident in their faith than we do. Because here, we are not opposed, and you may believe that we are, but we are not opposed by our government. Our government does not oppose us. We're not facing, at least right now, any sanctions for being Christians. You know? It's relatively easy. And it's hard to identify And we struggle with assurance. But people who are in countries where it is illegal to be a Christian and you have to do it secretly, it is obvious who is a Christian over there, especially when it is revealed. When it is revealed and persecution comes, the ones who are being persecuted can take hope in the fact that they see in me that I belong to Jesus. 
Persecution fuels assurance. It's a blessing because it shows that we belong to God, this language, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple and how the glory of God would dwell in those places and how it would descend and be on the people? He's saying that when you suffer persecution, it is evidence to you that God's spirit is on you, that you belong to him, that you are his chosen ones, his people. And that only, only deepens our joy in Christ. So Christian suffering deepens our joy. Second, uh, our third point, Christian suffering reveals our witness. So looking at verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There is great honor in suffering for Jesus because persecution is evidence that we are living as Jesus' witnesses. As I said, if you're never persecuted in any shape or form, so I don't want you to only think of persecution in terms of, well, I've never been arrested for following Jesus or, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm not being, you know, threatened with death for following Jesus. But if you have been ridiculed or insulted, for following Jesus, or your job has changed, or you have lost relationships with people, or relationships with people are really difficult, precisely because you are living out the implications of the gospel, or you are obeying Jesus, then you are enduring persecution. And there is great honor in that, because when you are living in that way, you are living as God has called you to live, and that is as his witnesses. So Christian persecution reveals your witness and your testimony to and for Jesus. And as verse 15 reminds us, if you never live out the implications of the gospel, you will never be persecuted for the sake of Jesus because no one will identify you with him. How tragic would that be? How tragic would it be that you could go through your life and have the best life ever, have the best friends, never run into any problems at all, and the reason is because no one knew that you identified with Jesus. No one saw Jesus in you. You see, because Jesus, here's the risk in living out your faith. Jesus, to those who are perishing, is the aroma of death. Okay? I want to be careful saying this, but he is offensive. And the gospel is offensive. Now, there is a distinction we need to make here because you could be the one being offensive. Okay? And we need to make sure that people are not um, pushed away by our sin. We want to make sure that if they're being pushed away, it's because they're not wanting to be receptive to the actual gospel, not because we're being jerks to them. But it would be a tragedy if we live an incredibly comfortable life. And it's a real danger. Or an incredibly comfortable life because we are not living as Jesus' witnesses in our city in our families, in our friend groups. So as verse 15 warns us, live in such a way that you do not deserve to suffer. And we don't have time, but it is so interesting that meddling is in the same list as murderer murder and thief and uh, evildoer. So <laughs> know that if you are meddling in other people's business, you are basically a murderer. So um, that's, Peter said that, not me, by the way. But that's, maybe that's for life group. You guys can talk about that. So, <laughs> so looking at verse 16 then, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Well, there, there feels like it feels shameful, right? Think about those Christians who were brought into the Colosseum or brought into these places. They are literally being shamed, right? They're, they're being dressed up in, in fur and dogs are chasing them to kill them. And here's what he says. Oh, you see that? Or you're enduring that? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. It is honorable to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Turn to Acts 5. Peter was, Peter was there in Acts 5. So this is really, really fitting. In Acts chapter 5, we see this, uh, this whole ordeal play out. We have 
the apostles, Peter included, and they're preaching the gospel, they're teaching others about Jesus, and then they get arrested by the high priests, and um, God sends an angel and essentially breaks them out of prison, and he says, go right back out there and continue being my witnesses. And they go right back out there, and they're living for the name of Jesus, and they're proclaiming the gospel, and they go to the high priest, hey, you know, we... We brought these guys in, and we arrested them. We put them in jail. But they're not there, though, and they're actually back out there doing that same thing again. And so they're, they're brought back in again, and they're given a lecture by the high priest, and there's this warning from a Pharisee. He's like, hey, look, don't mess with these people, okay? You know, and because, first of all, if, if, they, if this actually is real and they are of God, we don't, we don't want to be on the wrong side of this, right? We don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. Um, but eventually... The apostles, Peter included, are taken, and they're brought back in, and they're not, they're not in prison for a long time, but they, they are whipped, they are beaten, and then they are released, and they are instructed never to preach the gospel again. Well, good luck with that. But I want you to look at verse 41. Well, in verse 40, it says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then verse 41. Look at this response to their persecution. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They counted it a privilege, an honor, that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Is that how you view your life? Would you count it a privilege to suffer for being Jesus' witness? in your place of work, in this city? I don't, and again, you know, Peter's pretty clear here. Don't deserve suffering. So, you know, if, if you're in a school setting, for example, and you start shouting in the halls and you're preaching like you're on the street or something and teachers tell you to stop, stop. You know, stop. Don't, don't, be, like, don't be obstinate and keep proclaiming and screaming and yelling and then you get taken to the principal's office and yeah, I suffered for Jesus. It's like, no, you were just breaking the rules, you know? But I do want to encourage you. If you suffer for faithful witness to the gospel for Jesus, you should count yourself worthy. It is an honor. And as we know, obedience to the gospel is risky because it connects you to Jesus, the one who suffered in your place. And then he says here, he's like, hey, There's no shame here. Don't be ashamed. Instead, glorify God. It's an honor and glorify God. How do you glorify God when you suffer persecution? Because when you suffer persecution, what you're saying is that he is my greatest treasure. He is my greatest treasure. I can lose anything else. It doesn't matter. It's worthless. I'm going through this fire. I'm being purified. Yes, cleanse me of all impurity. I love money too much and you have sent this to me, and I'm being persecuted, I'm having to follow you and choose faith in you over faith in my career or whatever it is, you demonstrate to the world that Jesus is superior to everything else in your life. And that, in and of itself, glorifies God. So Christian suffering, it reveals our witness to the world because when you suffer persecution, You are identifying yourself with the name of Jesus and you are showing them who he is and what he has done. Then our last last point here, Christian suffering also strengthens our faith. This is a really interesting passage in verse 17. Peter writes, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And in this conclusion, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, back at the beginning of his letter, um, Peter writes this in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
You see, as God takes us through the purifying fire of Christian suffering, he is strengthening our faith in him. And God, you see, there's another connection here. You see the word judgment? This fiery trial, this suffering, this persecution is judgment from God. Now, the Greek word here is not the, the word in terms of condemnation. It's, it's a more generic term, like a judge just making a judgment. It can be positive, it can be negative. He is just evaluating the circumstances. And God uses Christian suffering to identify his people and determine their worth. Do they truly belong to me? Just like the basketball that week, only those who truly were committed to the vision of the team persevered to the end. Only those who were truly here, his will persevere through the fire of Christian suffering. And so God judges his people through this fire for the purpose of refining their faith. God is refining your faith if you are suffering persecution. And when we are forced to choose between God and something else as our greatest treasure, the genuineness of our faith is tested. You see in Jeremiah 2, God is pronouncing judgment on his people. And he says, he says to, the, to the leaders, or he says about the leaders, they, they say to a tree, you are my father. They say to a stone, you gave me birth. They have all these idols that they have constructed. But then he says, but in your time of trouble, you call out to me, arise and save me. And then the Lord condescends them and uh, he sarcastically says, well, hey, you have many gods. Why don't you call upon them to save you? Maybe that tree, maybe that stone can rise up and save you. You see, there's a, there's a lesson there that in the fire of suffering, our faith is strengthened because we look to the only one who can save us in times of trouble and through those trials. And the more you constantly look at him, and you know it, even when you think about any other kind of suffering or trial, your faith grows more in the hard times than it does in the easy times because you are leaning in you are holding on to the only one who has promised to bring you through to the end. And he will do it. And in the process, your faith will be refined. And as we trust God through suffering, our confidence in him will grow as we see that he is enough. He is enough. As I'm taken through this fire, I may lose some things that are precious to me, but he is enough. And that's what this fire does for us. Three things that faith does. And I want to close with this. As our faith is strengthened through persecution, faith frees us to obey God even when it costs us. If you never endure suffering or hard times for the sake of following Jesus, you will never experience this. Faith also frees us to love those who persecute us. You see verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. He, he says to these Christians who could be taken to the Colosseum, Trust God. Trust your faithful creator. He will be faithful to you. Even as the dogs rip away at your flesh, he will be faithful to you. Does that not help us know that even if someone takes everything, they take nothing? Because in him, we have everything. And here's what it frees us to do. If you have a coworker who's reviling you or insulting you because you are obeying Jesus in your place of work or a family member or a friend, you are totally free to love them because you're not bitter because you know that your faithful God is doing this for your good and you're trusting him, not this relationship that you have. And so you can freely love those who persecute you. And finally, faith frees us to hold everything but Jesus loosely. Everything that you have, all of your relationships, your job, your career, everything. Hold it loosely. Hold it loosely. Because you could endure, as you're living as a faithful witness to the gospel, you could endure a hardship that could cause you to lose it. Let it go. You have Jesus. And he is everything. See, the only reason that we can know that this judgment that comes from God is only for the purpose of purifying our faith is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus went up onto a hill and was crucified. He died in our place. He endured the consuming wrath of God in our place 
so that every bit of suffering we endure on this earth is only to conform us into his image. And that's the only judgment that we will ever face from God, a judgment that makes us more like his son. We will never face his consuming judgment because Jesus faced it in our place. But as a call to be urgent with the gospel, wherever you are, look at the end of verse 17. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, if he doesn't even spare us of hard times and suffering and trouble, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he leaves it open-ended and it's rhetorical. What will be the outcome? If they're not obeying the gospel of God because they're not trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, they will endure the consuming wrath of God eternally. So be his witnesses and take risk for the gospel. Don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Live out the implications of the gospel, but with your lost friends, take huge risks to see them come to faith in Jesus. Even if it costs you your friendship, don't hold anything back because you're afraid to be persecuted. Because Jesus is worth it. And apart from him, their outcome is damnation. So let's take hope and let's live out the implications of the gospel and be ready and willing to suffer. Counting the cost, but also counting ourselves Worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Because that's what he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Father, our hearts are broken over the persecuted church. We lift up those who are suffering even now because they have identified themselves with Jesus. I pray that you would encourage them with words like 1 Peter 4. I pray that you would strengthen their faith, that you would deepen their joy, and that you would reveal to them, this is happening to you because you have been my faithful witness. This is honorable. Father, I pray that you would prepare us to suffer intensely if need be. I pray that we would look to you as a faithful father who will stop at nothing to work for our good, even if it means temporary pain. Oh, Father, may we, be, may we be glad to endure temporary suffering and pain so that we will be more like your son. And as we share in his suffering now, may we one day share in his glory. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to obey the implications of the gospel. Help us to be bold witnesses for you in our city, unafraid of any persecution that may come as a result. Because our persecutors cannot steal our joy. They cannot steal our hope. They cannot touch our assurance. In fact, they fuel our assurance because we know if we're being persecuted for Jesus' sake, we belong to him. But Father, may we take risks in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the ends of our streets so that all would know and glorify the name of Jesus. We ask all this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, Church, we're going to come to the table here in a minute. Um, I do want us to uh, take a minute, though, and, and consider the sacrifice of Jesus. We come to the table for spiritual nourishment. We come to the table in obedience to uh, the command to remember Jesus. But we come because Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. So when you take this bread and you take this cup, I pray that you would do so mindful of what Jesus has done.
I pray that we would not forget. I pray that this would be a grace. And, and I pray that you would, in these few moments, I'm going to give you a few moments, I want you to confess any sins that need to be confessed and repent and then come. If you're visiting with us, uh, we don't ask... Uh, that you be a member of Trace Crossing before you come to the table here. We all come as members of Christ and share in this table. Um, we, we ask that uh, everyone come and get it, return to their seat, pray with your uh, friends and family, and then take the elements together. Um, let me pray over these elements, and then I'm going to invite you to pray, and then you can come get them. So, Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that he has done for us. I pray that as we come and take these elements that we would be mindful of our own sin because it was our sin that led Jesus to the cross. His body was broken, but ours deserved to be. His blood was shed, but ours deserved to be. He faced your wrath and now we never have to. Help us to be grateful and I pray that this would fuel greater obedience in our lives. Father, apply this grace to us and may we receive it by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We encourage you to pray and then come Take the elements back to your seed and let's share the table together. Mm -hmm.